0: Welcome to the QuackCast. This is the 113th. Before we get to the meat of the matter, I noticed today that somehow I ended up on the American Conservative University podcast. Since my podcasts are released under Creative Commons, anybody can release them any place they want, as long as they don't alter them. However, the description of the American Conservative University podcast describes their podcasts as all professionally recorded. I don't think so. And then the last line of their description is just listen at the feet of the world's greatest conservative thinkers. Please, I'm a suck ass liberal, as my brother would say. So if you happen to go to the American Conservative University podcast, please, I am not a great conservative thinker. I'm not even a great liberal thinker. Let's get on to the Puscast. This one is called Comprehending the Incomprehensible. The practice of medicine is impossible, really. The amount of information that flows out over the interwebs is amazing, and the time it takes to absorb it is tiny. If you work and sleep and have a family, once those responsibilities are complete, there is remarkably little time to keep up with the primary literature. Fortunately, I have made two of my hobbies, blogging and podcasting, dovetail with my professional need to keep up to date, but most healthcare providers lack the DSM 4 diagnosis to consistently keep up. It's nice to have a little OCD with my ADHD. So, we all rely upon shortcuts. People rely upon me to put new infectious disease information into context, and there are those I rely upon to help me understand information both in my specialty and in the fields that are unrelated to infectious diseases. Up and down the medical hierarchies, we trust each other that we are all doing our best to understand the too numerous to count aspects of medicine that no single person could ever comprehend. If I want to know about the state of art of the treatment of, say, atypical mycobacterium, or how best to treat Waldenstroms, or who knows the most about diagnosing sarcoid, there is always someone who can distill their experience on a topic to the benefit of the patient and my knowledge. Trusting others is the biggest shortcut we routinely take in medicine to wade through the Brogdignagian amounts of information that flood into the medical practice. We have to trust other clinicians, other researchers, and the journals that all the information is gathered and interpreted honestly and accurately. My mother did not raise a fool. I understand that the world is a tricky and confusing place, and that even under the best of circumstances, the literature has ample opportunity to be wrong. But in the end, the truth, or at least some approximation of it, should out. Trust is a fragile foundation upon which to build an edifice, but the practice of medicine would be impossible without it. It is one of the reasons why medical fraud is so particularly heinous. It strikes to the heart of how we need to practice medicine. One of the shortcuts we use is statistics. It is a quick and dirty way to check the validity of results, and there is nothing like a good p-value to make the results believable. And the smaller the p-value, the better. That is a simple and sometimes misleading approach. Except for infectious disease and scams, I rarely have the luxury to read a study closely. So, I look at the p-values. Now, I've had this long mental block with statistics. I took and dropped statistics once a year for four years in college. Once they got past the bell-shaped curve and the flip of the coin, they would always lose me. And I was a physics major in college. I could do math. So I have to trust that the statistics are correct when I read a paper, and that bothers me. I would feel better if I knew that at one time I had actually been able to crank out the results with a pencil and a piece of paper. Otherwise, statistics are like the old New Yorker cartoon. Then a miracle occurs. You all know that cartoon. It was nice to be reminded for the umpteenth time that statistics can be tricky with an article in Vaccine called 5 Ways Statistics Can Fool You Tips for Practicing Clinicians I write this in my other blog to first educate and entertain me it is at the end of the day all about me as a side effect I hope to educate and entertain others but I long ago learned that not everyone shares my aesthetic and I think the world is a poor place because of it There are those of you listening to this for which the five ways are old hat, part of your critical thinking skills. For me, it is yet another attempt to understand statistical concepts with the depth of understanding that I have for, say, MRSA, rather than, say, the loop of Henley. The understanding of the latter lasts about as long as I am reading about it, if that. I still suspect the loop of Henley is mythical, and has as much validity as homeopathy. The opening statement of the paper is a master of understatement. Quote, However, compounding the problem of finding and effectively using the medical literature is the fact that many, if not most, physicians lack core skills in epidemiology and statistics, guilty, to allow them to properly and efficiently evaluate new research. This may limit their abilities to provide the best evidence-based care to their patients, end of quote. No kidding. And this article is meant to be applied to reality or science-based treatment. As I have mentioned before, it is even more problematic when statistics are applied to fantasy interventions like acupuncture or homeopathy. Then, not only do physicians lack the core competencies to evaluate the paper— most are not able to recognize the subtle biases that allow magic to be perceived as real. It's like having real scientists evaluate ESP, where a magician would be a much better qualified observer. I suspect that many editors and reviewers of scam papers are untrained in the skills required to evaluate scam research. They apply the rules of science and peer review where those rules do not apply. The tips with examples from the vaccine literature are, 1. Statistical significance does not equate to clinical significance. 2. Absolute risk rather than relative risk informs clinical significance. 3. Confidence intervals offer more information than p-values, unless you're a urologist. 4. Beware. Uh, This one's so true. Beware multiple testing and isolated significant p values. And absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It is remarkable how these tips can be applied to scam related articles and the articles are found wanting. And this is, of course, in the application of statistics to reality. If you add a touch of prior plausibility, and there is no reason to suspect that the barely positive results noted in many scam studies are due to anything but bias and only bias, since most of the interventions we discuss on this podcast, The Royal Way, have zero probability of a real effect, there should be an alternative explanation for what appear to be beneficial outcomes. In the case of scam, the absence of evidence is very likely the evidence for absence. Recently, there have been two other articles that looked at the effect of bias on outcomes in clinical trials. One was Observer Bias in Randomized Clinical Trials with Binary Outcomes, Systematic Review of Trials with Both Blinded and Non-Blinded Outcome Assessors, and Observer Bias in Randomized Clinical Trials with Measurement Scale Outcomes, a Systematic Review of trials with both blinded and non-blinded assessors. It is almost the same article twice over. In the two analyses, they looked at the outcomes of clinical trials with a person determining the outcome. For example, the number of wrinkles after an anti-wrinkle therapy are blinded or not as to the therapy. It should come as no surprise that when people know what the intervention is, they assess that intervention as more effective Than if they were blinded. Quote, non blinded assessors of subjective measurement scale outcomes in randomized clinical trials tended to generate substantially biased effect sizes. And this is for relatively tightly controlled clinical trials. In real world practice, the tendency to overestimate the effect of a therapy must be even greater. It shows up most often in the phrase, I use X on my patients. And that is how I know it works. The incredibly strong effect of bias in determining that you see what you want to see, regardless of what is actually there, is a common human characteristic. To be blind to that characteristic is a common Dunning-Kruger variant of all true believers. Statistics make my brain hurt, just like Mr. Gumby. But if I can remember some basic principles, it makes understanding the medical literature a wee bit more comprehensible. And so we come to the end of the 113th QuackCast, brought to you by one of the great conservative thinkers of our time. Tell me about the rabbits, George.